songs that are in the book, but tonight, whether threatening or just do the one, number 11. Number 11. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature say. Number 11. Joy to the world. The Lord is come.
passage at length other nights, God willing. We'll just uh, break in at verse 10. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Now look at the end of the gospel, please. Chapter 24. <coughs> Chapter 24 and verse 50. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem, here are these words again, with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. I think that there are few types of hymns that have such a perfect matching of words and tunes as do what we call the Christmas carols. There is the, the, the quiet, silent night. There is the calm, old little town of Bethlehem. There is the, the stirring, hark the herald angels sing. And then there's this, the triumphant joy to the world. The hymn that we're looking at tonight is one of the most popular Christmas carols in the world. It is the result of the efforts of Isaac Watts, who wrote the words, a man named Lowell Nason, who wrote the music, and some feel that, uh, that Watts actually was influenced by uh, Handel's Messiah, because they, they were contemporaries. Mason lived 100 years later in Boston. Now, as you'll note in just a moment, Watts did not write this for Christmas and as a carol. That's how we know it, that's how we sing it, but that's not, that's not what he was doing, which is why the carol, as we call it, is really referring to the second coming of the Lord Jesus when he comes back to the earth and all nations will prove his righteousness. But just for now, think about what he wrote. Isaac Watts was born in Southampton, England on July 17, 1674. As an encouragement to those who are just very plain looking, it might be encouraging for you to know this, that as a young man, Isaac, was frail and often sickly, and he was not particularly handsome. His head seemed too large for his five-foot-tall body. He had small, piercing eyes and a hooked nose, and of course that didn't enhance his appearance very much. He actually loathed the sight of his diminutive figure whenever he glimpsed it in a mirror, and it stung him to hear himself referred to as, quote, little Dr. Watts. So it was in self-defense that he once wrote, were I so tall to reach the pole or grasp the ocean in my span, I must be remembered by my, I must be measured by my soul, the minds, the standard of the man. When he was 21 years old, he accompanied his father to a church service in Southampton, and on the way home as they discussed it, Isaac commented that he found the hymn book extremely disappointing. He felt that the hymns were uh, lacking in dignity and beauty, and so his father challenged him. If you can do better, do it. And that was the beginning of his life work. He eventually wrote over 600 hymns, most of which incorporate strong theology. Consequently, his hymns not only entertain, they also teach. I, I have a copy of hymns that he wrote for 138 of the 150 psalms. And for many of those 138 psalms, he wrote numerous hymns, not just one hymn per psalm, but numerous. That's beside the hundreds of additional 
hymns and spiritual songs that he wrote. It's little wonder that he is often called the father of English hymns. Now, we sing many of his hymns without realizing that they are paraphrases of various psalms. For example, when you have sung, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. That was his paraphrase of Psalm 72. He read Psalm 72 and he put it in his own words, poetic form, and that's what we sing today. When we sing, O God, our help in ages past, that was Watts' paraphrase, his version, of Psalm 90. He read Psalm 90, he expressed it in poem form, and we now sing it as, O God, our help in ages past. And that is what is behind the composition of Joy to the World. As I said, Watts never set out to write this as a Christmas carol. Instead, he was paraphrasing a psalm. And these words are based on the last half of Psalm 98. As you read it, you'll see that Psalm 98 says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. Despite its lack of reference to Mary, or wise men, or Joseph, or shepherds, or angels, or the manger, Joy to the World became one of the most beloved Christmas carols. So just to give you some idea, if you ever look it up, he has two sections dealing with Psalm 98. The first is called Praise for the Gospel, and there are three verses that do deal with the first part of that psalm. What we sing, Joy to the World, is Psalm 98, part two. It's titled The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom, and there are the four verses that we have sung tonight. After his death on November 25th, 1748, a monument was erected to Isaac Watts in Westminster Abbey. But his hymns are the greatest monument to what this man accomplished in his life. There is a, a Christmas song, not a carol. There's a Christmas song that says something to the effect that this is the most wonderful time of the year. I think it is. I, I, love, I love going into a store and hearing music about the Lord Jesus. I, I, I wish the world was like that. I, I wish the world was a world that acknowledged, acknowledged Christ. I wish the world was, was marked by kindness and generosity and, and friendship. And It's not like that. But this time of year reminds us that we should be finding joy not in things, but in relationships, in people whom we know and love. So it shouldn't surprise us that the ultimate joy comes from the ultimate relationship, a relationship with God. And it is not a matter, please could I just say at the very beginning, God is not a needy God. It's not that somehow God needs us, and God needs us because he's a relational God, which he is, and somehow he's just as unhappy until we are in a relationship with him. It's the other way around. We need God. And God made us, made us to live with relationships. We learn that, we learn that almost from infancy, don't we? But what we lack is any link with the God of heaven. So I want you to think with me for a few minutes about what sin has done to us and what Christ has done for us. What sin has done to us is it has shredded, it has severed, it has snapped, it has broken the relationship that God intended would be between him and us. It's so clear in the opening passages of the book of Genesis, isn't it? 
that the highlight of Adam's day and of Eve's day was when God would come down into the garden and God would visit with them. It's beyond our ability to grasp what was going on and those interactions between God and the creatures. What they must have learned, what they must have heard, what they would look forward to every day. And then sin came in. And when sin came in, the guilty couple ran to hide from God. God hadn't changed. They had changed. We have changed. The reason that the world is the way it is with all of the war and, and turmoil and unrest and sorrow and grief and pain is because we are not the way we're supposed to be. Sin has ruined us. And Paul put it so succinctly when he said that because of sin we are without God, we are without Christ, and we are without hope in the world. So I want you to think that I can, I think I can, I think I can show you this in two chapters. They're back to back, and yet they deal with two very different kind of people. And in those two chapters, you will see something of the emptiness that sin has brought into our lives. John chapter 3, it is a religious man. His name is Nicodemus. He is a man with unanswered questions. He has come to the Lord Jesus at night. He has questions for the Savior. But the big question, once he listens to what the Savior says, the big question in his mind was how? How? The Lord Jesus is talking about a new birth, about being born again, being born from above. And Nicodemus is trying to wrap his mind around it. How can this be? Now what we find when we read that famous passage is that his religion had not brought peace to his heart. All his religion, all his knowledge of the Bible, all his devotion, all of his learning what God had to say, nothing had brought peace to his heart. Because religion cannot make up for the absence of God. A man named John Wesley, very well known, he came to this country to work among the Indians in Georgia. When he went home, his work was a total disaster. When he went home, he, was, he wrote in his diary on the ship, I went to America to convert the Indians and found what I little expected. Who shall convert me? Who shall convert me? The man was, was deeply religious, but he discovered that he had never been saved. He wasn't born again. And like Nicodemus, his religion had not secured for him a place in heaven. Nicodemus was shocked to discover that he wasn't ready for heaven the way he was. Of all the things he thought he'd hear from the Savior, I suppose that would be the last. He was a sincere seeker after God. He was a sincere Pharisee. There weren't a lot of them, but he was. And yet the Lord Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you can't go to heaven the way you are. Now very often Christians' children imagine that somehow they're different from the regular sinners. And somehow people out there, they really need to be born again. I hope we all understand that if a person is not born again, he cannot, she cannot see the kingdom of God. That you must be born again. That none of us, none of us is fit for heaven the way we are. When you come to the very next chapter, John chapter 4, now it's not a religious man, it's a, it's a Samaritan woman. And, and she was at the other end of the spectrum when it comes to morality. And she comes to the Lord Jesus, and yet her question is going to be, where? Where 
else is this living water? Because while the religion that Nicodemus had didn't satisfy him, the sinful life that the Samaritan woman had not satisfied her. And she comes and finds out that sin had a past that had not been erased. How shocking. If it shocked Nicodemus to find out that he was not going to heaven the way he was. What a shock it was to this woman to find out that this man knew everything about her. She had never met him before. He had never met her before. And yet he began to tell her what her life was like. Because you see, sin is not erased until it is forgiven. Guilt is a powerful built-in warning system signaling to us that all is not right. Modern man has done everything possible to take the batteries out of the alarm so that our minds will not tell us that we have done wrong. But when a person comes to the Bible and listens to what God says, it's like the contact in the battery being made and suddenly a person becomes aware of the fact, I have sinned against God. This woman realized her sins were known to this man, Jesus. Your sins, if not forgiven, every one of your sins is written in his book in heaven. Sin had created a thirst that she had not been able to quench. Sometimes people find themselves wondering, isn't there more to life than just this? Is this all that there is? And that's not so much a question that young people have. But uh, Derek Bach, who was the uh, former president of Harvard, was asked on one occasion what was the biggest problem facing today's students. So Harvard, and the president of Harvard, and his acquaintance with the modern educational system, and with young Americans, what is the greatest problem facing today's students? I am not going to ask you to guess it, but I don't think anybody here could if you never read this. He answered in one word. The greatest problem facing students today, he was asked, emptiness. Emptiness. Life has been robbed of any meaning, meaning by evolution. It has, it has brought us down to the point where we're nothing more than animals. Better trained, better trained than the other animals. We can do tricks that the other animals can't do. But it's taken from us, if you believe it, it's taken from us any concept that life is sacred or noble or valuable. But when you come to the Bible, you find instead of a God who just simply made animals, that God forged a link between himself and us, and that link, having been created in the knowledge of God, having imparted to us capabilities that no other creature in this world has, that is what has made us feel this emptiness, that we know we were made for something more than this. So when you come to the book that we have read from, the Gospel of Luke, I think it's interesting that it should begin and end with the same words, great joy. The world is sadly lacking in joy. It has plenty of fun, plenty, plenty of fun, and it has lots of happiness. It just doesn't have much joy. 
Joy can withstand the impact of life's trials and difficulties. Happiness disappears. Fun evaporates. But joy, joy can face whatever comes because joy is something that's based on something outside of myself altogether. Christians have a joy that is based in God and nothing can change that, nothing can alter that. So I want you to think with me for a few minutes about what Christ has done for us. He said that he came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. He said he came to recover, that is to save those who were lost. So the joy, the joy that you read out in the Bible is a Christian word because it's based on what the Lord Jesus has done. Because sin snapped the link between us and God, Christ needed to deal with sin and provide a way that we could be forgiven and reconciled. That's why the idea that Jesus was a wonderful teacher and we should listen to his teachings only goes so far. That's why the idea that Jesus showed us how to be true and faithful, how to die for our cause, all of that may have some help and bearing for some people, but it's missing the reason why he came. Sin had ruined us. He came to provide the remedy for sin. He was my substitute. He took my place at Calvary. When God dealt with him for my sins, it was as though God were dealing with him that day at Calvary. He stepped into my place. He died instead of me. In one sense, he died instead of Barabbas, but in a greater sense, he died instead of me. The hymn writer says it was a guilty sinner's cross, yet he was crucified. This is what Israel realized, many of them, on the Passover night. The lamb died instead of the firstborn son. And every time a parent would look at the boy that was saved, the parent would be, would be aware and would be thinking, now the lamb died. If the lamb hadn't died, my boy would have died. But the lamb died instead. And what happened at Calvary is that the Lord Jesus died as my substitute. The Mexican author, Carlos Fuentes, writes that when Christian missionaries first preached the gospel to the Aztecs, the Aztecs were totally confounded, stunned by what they were hearing. This is what he wrote, quote, in a universe accustomed to seeing men sacrificed to the gods, nothing amazed them more than the thought of a God who had sacrificed himself to men. And yet that is exactly what Christianity is saying. That Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for the ungodly. That Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. That is the message of the gospel. He was my substitute at Calvary, taking my place. As my redeemer, he paid the price to release me from my slavery and ensure that I would never be enslaved again. I've been working on a message for Sunday school. Maybe I shouldn't tell this because I might want to use it here one day, but there, there, there was a man, his last name was Bram. If I told you his nickname, I'd be giving away what happened, but his nickname was Box Brown. He was a slave. He married another slave. I think they had two children. And one day their master sold 
Mr. Brown's wife and children to another slave master. And Box Brown couldn't do a thing about it. He followed his wife and kids as far as he was allowed to down the road. And then he just watched them go and he'd never see them again for the rest of his life because he was a slave. He had no freedom. And that was the thing that triggered in him a longing to be free. Over a number of years, he had saved up a little bit of money. And along with an uh, abolitionist in the city of Philadelphia, the arrangement was made. And Box Brown shipped himself in a box to Philadelphia. I think it was 27 hours on the road. Stagecoach, ferry, ship, wagon. At times the box was upside down and he was, he was upside down inside the box and the veins in his neck were thick and standing out from the blood all rushing to his head. And when they got the box in Philadelphia, those men carried it into a room and shut the door. And they just quietly said, it's all well. And their hearts were so relieved when they heard Box Brown answer from inside, all is well. And so they quickly cut the bands that were holding the box together. The lid was opened up. Box Brown had it all planned. And when the lid opened and he stood up, he sang, <laughs> full-throated, he sang one of the Psalms. That God brought me up out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay and he set my feet upon a rock. All of that effort, risking his life, was just to be free. At Calvary, the Lord Jesus paid the price to set you free. And this is what Israel realized at the Red Sea. Because when they stood on the far side of the Red Sea and saw their enemy defeated, they realized, we're free. They can never enslave us again. We are free. And Paul wrote to the Galatians, for freedom, Christ has made us free. For freedom, that's the reason why he saved us, to set us free. And he'll set you free tonight. Set you free from your sins. As my substitute, he took my place, paid for my sins. As my redeemer, he paid the price to set me free. As my savior, he has secured my eternal safety through his work on the cross. This is what some Israelites perhaps realized only in a limited sense on the Day of Atonement when they would watch the scapegoat go away into the wilderness and then watch the fifth band coming back. They would realize that for another year they were secure in the presence of God. They would realize that their sin had been handled by God. I came at the age of 15 and a half, I came to the understanding that everything that was needed to save me from hell had been done by the Lord Jesus at the cross. And I entered into peace. Just think, what kind, of, what kind of grace is this that I've been telling you about? That God enters our world by way of a, a manger and leaves by way of a cross. That God comes into our world lying in a feeding trough and leaves it nailed to a felon's cross. What, 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 what kind of grace and love is this that has undertaken to meet all of your deepest need so that you could have the joy of God's salvation tonight? And why would you go home without it? 
Luke is the one who writes so much about joy, doesn't he? He's the one who wrote in chapter 1, Mary rejoiced in spirit. She rejoiced in God, her Savior. He's the one who wrote that Zacchaeus received the Lord Jesus joyfully. He's the one who wrote that there was great joy in the city when the gospel was preached in Acts chapter 8. He's the one who said that the jailer rejoiced believing in God with all his house. He's the one who wrote that the Ethiopian chancellor or treasurer went on his way rejoicing. And he's the one who tells us when Christ came, there was great joy. When Christ went to heaven, there was great joy. And that when we sing joy to the world, it's because the Lord has come. And you can have that joy and that assurance tonight if you will trust the Lord Jesus. Do you know that the hymn, Rock of Ages, Ira Sankey was um, the man who uh, wrote many of the stories of the gospel hymns. And when it came to the hymn, Rock of Ages, he wrote that the prince consort, that is Albert, who was married to Queen Victoria, repeated the words of Rock of Ages frequently on his deathbed and gave a reason for that. He said, quote, this is according to Sankey, if in this hour I had only my worldly honors and dignities to depend on, I should be poor indeed. You got that? Because when you come to die, all that's going to matter is whether Christ is your Savior. And that's why he came into the world. Make sure tonight, even in an abbreviated reading, make sure tonight that you come to know Christ as your Savior, that you trust him, and you will go home with joy, not just to the world, but joy in your heart to God for his unspeakable gift. Shall we pray? Father, we bow to ask thy blessing on thy word. Pray for safety for all traveling home. We pray, Lord, about the storm and the ice and weather and ask thee to undertake that there may be nothing untoward or uh, any difficulties involving those who will be driving from the meeting. We pray for thy word that has been read and the truths that have been spoken. We pray for precious souls who are with us tonight who need Christ. And we pray for their salvation. It may be that they are hardly thinking about this, and yet it is the most important issue in life. And were they stepping into eternity tonight, there would be nothing more important than this. And so we pray that they will awaken to this great reality, and they will trust our Lord Jesus for salvation. Again, we ask for safety as we go to our homes giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Number seven. <clears throat> Number seven. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Just verse 3 in the chorus of number 7 in the New Year's Hill. Hail, 